welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I've had some pretty long intros of late. I'll keep it short and sweet. Thank you so much to everyone who continues to support the show and who reaches out to me with your issues and unique cases. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. This week, five cases with three asylum-type decisions, all from Guatemala. Thought I'd bookend the episode with some awesome asylum wins. So you gotta listen all the way through. Here we go. Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Our first case. Sabin Kok, the Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on January 25th, 2023. This case is literally about everything withholding of removal and convention against torture related. Strap in. It's going to take like half the episode. Mr. Sabin Kok is an indigenous asylum seeker from Guatemala. Specifically, quote, he's one of the Kakchikel Mayan indigenous ethnicity and was one of the few Kakchikel living in Montufar, end quote the neighborhood that he grew up in. And really, it looks like the only other indigenous individuals in that community were his own family members. 
In a quote, they can be used in many similar cases. Quote, Kakchikel Mayans stand out from the majority population because of their names, language, physical appearance, and dress. End quote. So there's your social distinction. When Mr. Savencock was growing up, a local MS-13 affiliated gang would harass and beat him, quote, based on his ethnicity, end quote. The gang was trying to recruit him, and he didn't report any of it out of fear of retaliation. Mr. Savencock dropped out of school and fled the town at 15 years old because of all of it. The gang still found him and attacked him four times when he'd returned to visit his family. During the worst attack, gang members yelled at him, quote, damn indigenous, silly indigenous, end quote, and broke a glass bottle over his face and eye, knocking him unconscious. There was no hospital nearby, meaning that his grandmother treated his wounds. He had scars to prove it. Also not reported to police, based on a belief that, quote, the police did not respond to the complaints of indigenous people, end quote. Gang members kept looking for him, and he first fled to the U.S. in April 2014. He was detained at the border and expeditiously removed because he, quote, did not realize that he could apply for asylum, end quote. Threatened again, Mr. Savencock came back to the border, but now with an expedited removal order, all DHS had to do was reinstate it and physically remove him again, which it did. Came back. Made it in this time and lived without apprehension for a few years. But the gang started targeting his family members who he had left behind. They beat up his father, referencing Mr. Savencock himself. Mr. Savencock urged his father to report it, but he didn't, believing it pointless with cases of gang violence against indigenous people. His 16-year-old sister was kidnapped, beaten, and raped. This time, the father did report it, but according to the family, police ignored the complaint. Mr. Savencock's wife and children were threatened, and eventually the whole family fled to the U.S., only Mr. Savencock's younger brother remains in Guatemala, in hiding, after a gang attack of his own. Scene set. DHS caught up with him in 2020. They reinstated that final expedited order of removal again, but this time, Mr. Savencock expressed a fear and passed his reasonable fear interview. And so, despite all of that, he cannot apply for asylum. He was placed in withholding-only proceedings, where he sought for an immigration judge to withhold his final expedited order of removal by either granting withholding or cat protection. And note, unlike asylum, neither that relief nor protection provide derivative family benefits, meaning that Mr. Savencock's wife and children will remain without status, even if Mr. Savencock succeeds unless they can succeed on their own. Mr. Savencock did not succeed before the IJ and the BIA. They didn't believe that the terrible things Mr. Savencock experienced constituted past persecution, because they weren't on account of a protected ground, according to the agency. Apparently, Mr. Savencock's proffered particular social group was, quote, young Guatemalan men who are recruited by a gang and publicly refuse to join, end quote. Lacked any mention of indigenous ethnicity. Without a past persecution finding, Mr. Savencock bore the burden to show that he couldn't relocate in Guatemala, the IJ found that lacking too. All the harm the IJ reasoned had happened only in his small town, and only when he returned to visit from a town that he had lived in for four years. Plus, his brother still lived in the town. The BIA affirmed all of that, the harm suffered to the BIA, even in the aggregate with all the beatings and the death threats and the glass bottle knocking Mr. Savencock unconscious, didn't rise to the level of past persecution. Forget Nexus, it wasn't bad enough, said the IJ and the BIA. As you may have guessed, the Third Circuit did not agree. 
in a 30-page single-space decision with, and I do not kid, 123 footnotes. And in defense of the third, the panel puts its legal sites in the footnotes, so that's not crazy. Just poking a little fun, your honors. Anyway, to the Third Circuit, despite the BIA having affirmed the IJ entirely, quote, at times, the IJ's decision completely conflicts with the record, end quote. Let's begin. The Third Circuit found significant error in the IJ and the BIA's apparent failure to base its no-pass persecution finding on the fact that Mr. Sabin-Cock didn't require medical care. But that's wrong for at least three reasons. First, it looks like he totally needed it. Second, looks like he couldn't get it because it wasn't available in his town. The IJ conflated, quote, the decision to not seek professional medical care with the conclusion that medical care was not required, end quote. And most importantly, in Dovey Attorney General of the U.S. published just before the podcast began in the Third Circuit, quote, a finding of past persecution does not rely on whether the victim sought medical attention, end quote. Emphasis by the court. So lots of errors there. And actually, there's a fourth, another gold quote for you all. Quote, the IJ and the BIA ignored the realities of the Guatemalan healthcare system and the role traditional medicine plays in it. End quote. Can't do that. At least when relevant based on the non-citizen's identity and maybe indigenous ethnicity. Quote, neither the IJ nor the BIA bothered to consider that in Mr. Sabincock's community. The herbal medicine that his grandmother administered may well have been accepted as the only treatment realistically available, even for very serious injuries, end quote. A must-read decision when non-citizens do not seek medical care for the injuries suffered in their home country. To the Third Circuit, the IJ and the BIA also failed to properly consider the cumulative effect of all the harms in the aggregate to reach the no-pass persecution finding. As I've mentioned in recent weeks, the cumulative effect analysis is historically reserved for the torture analysis and cat protection. This, therefore, is yet another recent case holding that IJs must consider all harms cumulatively when conducting a persecution analysis as well. No small holding. Reviewing the various beatings, really scary as described in this decision and the various threats, the Third Circuit held that the standard was met cumulatively at a minimum. Read the case and compare your facts to these. Quote, To find this incident insufficient to rise to the level of persecution suggests that egregiousness must go beyond being stabbed, kicked into unconsciousness, and left bleeding with pieces of flesh hanging out. Merely stating such a proposition is sufficient to refute it. End quote. Ah, the powerful rhetorical style beloved by law clerks nationwide. Nor did the BIA consider the psychological harm to Mr. Sabincock from witnessing and learning about the horrible harms to his family, including the rape of his sister. Nor did the BIA consider Mr. Sabincock's young age, at least his youth, at the time of some of these attacks. The IJ and the BIA must, said the Third Circuit, for the first time. Another big holding. Dare I say we have the first mic drop of a decision in 2023? I'll temper that last part a bit. Some circuits like the 1st and the 7th and the 9th have held, essentially, that harm suffered or experienced as a child can be past persecution, even if it wouldn't be if experienced as an adult. The 1st Circuit has held that, if nothing else, the IG and the BIA must consider youth in the totality analysis. Here, the Third Circuit's ruling aligns more with the First Circuit. The IJ and the BIA must, quote, explicitly consider what effect, if any, these experiences had on Mr. Sabin Koch given his youth, 
End quote. Leaves for another day whether children enjoy a lessened past persecution burden. But the issue has now been initially brought up in the Third Circuit for the next case to develop. There's more! The threats, too, were past persecution, particularly as the gang followed up on him by horrifically assaulting Mr. Savenkoff with that bottle. So that's all the past persecution. Still gotta get over Nexus. And to be honest, I'm not sure Mr. Savenkoff made the argument before the IJ or not, it's a bit unclear. But in any event, the Third Circuit held that Mr. Savenkoff, quote, has clearly established membership in a particular social group as an indigenous person in Guatemala, end quote. So with all of that to the Third Circuit, the burden should have shifted to DHS to prove that Mr. Savenkoff couldn't relocate. With the past persecution finding, the non-citizen no longer bears that burden. DHS does. Burdens aside, though, it looks like the Third Circuit reads the record very differently. It believed that the gang had followed Mr. Savencock to the other town, as well as harming him in his original town, and that Mr. Savencock was forced to hide even in the other town. Burdens be damned, relocation didn't appear reasonable to the court. How about this quote? Stated by a designated expert, and relied upon the Third Circuit, so I presume it's good enough for you too in your case, quote, It is exceedingly difficult for individuals particularly indigenous individuals previously targeted by gangs, to move from the area in which they have grown up and find a safe, secure place to live, end quote, in Guatemala. In conjunction with the Third Circuit's recent very non-citizen favorable decision in the Simba, episode 87, give it a listen, Mr. Sabincock won on relocation too. I know you wish I was, but I'm still not done. Cat protection. Remember, 30 pages, single-spaced. Suffice it to say, the Third Circuit believed that the agency had failed to consider what would happen to Mr. Savenkak if removed, and instead focused, erroneously as it turns out, what happened to him in the past. And as we now know, the agency also failed to consider all the harms in totality. And the Third Circuit believes the BIA applied the wrong standard of review to the IJ's findings. Really, wrong on many counts. To a panel pulling no punches with the asylum seeker-friendly quotes, quote, there is considerable evidence that would support a finding that the government officials were willfully blind to the violence of gang members, especially against indigenous people, end quote. And that, quote, the police are themselves involved with the gangs, end quote, in Guatemala. Indeed, quote, allegations of gang influence and corruption reached the highest levels of local government, end quote. Anyone got a Guatemalan indigenous asylum-seeking case? Mr. Sabinkak has credibly suffered horrible harm, as has his family and especially his sister. The Third Circuit is sending it back, and I fail to see how he doesn't win, at least withholding of removal. A harsh rule, reinstatement. I mean a monster decision favorable to non-citizens in many, many ways issued by the Third Circuit. Congratulations attorney and seemingly adjunct professor Stephanie E. Norton of Seton Hall University School of Law for petitioner. Keep her on for the next semester, Seton Hall, and all semesters thereafter. I'll try to be quick with my final thoughts, but looking at what I wrote, I will fail at doing so. Lots of important holdings in this case on standards of review, too. A must-read when prepping an asylum-type petition for review in the third. Including this, in a footnote of course, the Third Circuit notes that whether a non-citizen suffered past persecution is a finding of fact that receives very deferential review, fair enough. However, quote, where factual findings are based on a misunderstanding of the law, 
we will review the abstract legal determination de novo, end quote. A quote not limited to asylum relief. Another way to turn a factual challenge into a legal one, it appears, and potentially avoid the Supreme Court's Patel decision. Where Patel applies, of course. If nothing else like here, it's a way to get more favorable review in the courts. That's pretty heady and boring, but for the uber nerds. How about this to end it then? Asylum seekers, quote, primarily come from countries in the poorest and most dangerous regions of the world. Any presumption that they enjoy the same kind of resources as their adjudicators is short-sighted and unfair, end quote. And it can lead to reversal. And that is Sabin Cockby, Attorney General of the U.S. All right. Next is Cruz Velasco v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on January 24th, 2023. I'll have more asylum for you in just a minute. This case is about good moral character and matter of Castillo-Perez. Alas! Well, kind of. Mr. Cruz Velasco is from Mexico and has lived in the U.S. since 1999. He has two U.S. citizen sons, who he raised as a single father after the untimely passing of his wife. He came to the attention of immigration authorities in 2013 following a reckless driving conviction. The facts underlying that reckless driving conviction show that he was drunk and that he had his two children in the car. And then very unfortunately, he got a DUI conviction in 2016 during removal proceedings. He was technically eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal and indeed seems to have had a strong case, what being a single father of U.S. citizen children and all. But in addition to the onerous hardship requirement for that relief, applicants must show that they've lived in the U.S. continuously for 10 years, immediately preceding the date of the filing for relief, and that they've been persons of good moral character during the entirety of that 10-year time. At the individual hearing in 2018, Mr. Cruz Velasco testified that he hadn't had a drop of alcohol since the incident in 2016. But, among other things, quote, noting the seriousness of the first offense, the immigration judge stressed that Mr. Cruz Velasco's failure to learn from his mistake, as shown by his arrest for operating while intoxicated only three years later, end quote, showed that he lacked the good moral character required of non-LPR cancellation of removal. Even worse, on appeal, Attorney General Barr issued matter of Castillo-Perez, which held that, quote, two or more convictions for driving under the influence in the relevant period raise a presumption that a non-citizen lacks good moral character, end quote. Even worse, reasoned the Attorney General on that decision, quote, that presumption cannot be overcome solely by evidence showing rehabilitation, end quote. No forgiveness. The BIA affirmed the IJ and then denied a motion to reopen filed by Mr. Cruz Velasco based on his recent diagnosis of diabetes and the effect of the raising COVID-19 pandemic at the time. Mr. Cruz Velasco brought it all to the Seventh Circuit, which affirmed the BIA. First, though, favorable Patel holding. Patel would totally bar the Seventh Circuit from reviewing the denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal where the challenge regarded a disputed issue of fact. But here, quote, no one disputes the length of Mr. Cruz Velasco's sobriety or any other evidence concerning his rehabilitation, end quote. Meaning that to the Seventh Circuit, quote, we have jurisdiction to decide whether the BIA reasonably applied the good moral character standard to those undisputed facts, end quote. And that, everybody, is how you get around Patel. Good work, counsel. 
Restated, that is a mixed question of law and fact that circuits have jurisdiction to review, even if the ultimate relief at issue, non-LPR cancellation of removal here, was squarely at issue in Patel and the statute divesting circuits of jurisdiction. Mixed questions of law and fact are exempt. Bring a legal claim here, proper application of the good moral character analysis, and show that the facts relevant to that claim are not in dispute. Here, Mr. Cruz Velasco's sobriety. Good holding on jurisdiction. Lost on the merits. Quote, Mr. Cruz Velasco drove drunk while his two young sons were in the car. The BIA was entitled to label this as a serious offense. Despite its gravity, Mr. Cruz Velasco was again arrested for driving while intoxicated only three years later. End quote. The BIA didn't abuse its discretion to find that this evinced bad moral character. It's a bit confusing as it's all in the motion to reopen context rather than on direct petition for review from the BIA's decision. Looks like Mr. Cruz Velasco may not have timely petitioned for review on the merits. And actually then, as it arises in the motion to reopen context, that's another way to get around Patel and the jurisdiction problems. See Giannis Trejo v. Garland, episode 134 out of the 8th. That rationale wasn't used here, so I won't get into all of that, but just remember that it's out there. I mention all of that now, though, because the Seventh Circuit also denied the petition for review and upheld the BIA's refusal to exercise its sua sponte authority to reopen proceedings. And that's because, quote, the merits of the BIA's decision not to reopen a case sua sponte are unreviewable unless it was tainted by a legal error, end quote. Actually, not a horrible quote for getting a review of refusals to reopen sua sponte, but not met here. Meaning that Mr. Cruz Velasco's removal order stands. Final note. Ultimately, the Seventh Circuit didn't actually say that Attorney General Barr was right to do what he did in matter of Castillo-Perez with all those presumptions. Because to the Seventh Circuit, the issue wasn't brought up. Nor did the Seventh Circuit address whether the BIA erred in applying matter of Castillo-Perez retroactively to pre-Castillo-Perez conduct, because that issue was apparently waived. But both issues are alive and kicking in most circuits, and certainly the Seventh, and the retroactivity argument is particularly interesting to me. And that is Cruz Velasco v. Garland. Next is Debit v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on January 27th, 2023. Some crimmigration for you all. Mr. Debeek is from Trinidad and Tobago, has lived in the United States for 20 years, and became a lawful permanent resident in 2015. But in 2019, he was convicted of sexual abuse in the second degree under New York Penal Law Section 130.62. The crime is actually a bit worse than the title suggests, as it criminalized one who, quote, subjects another person to sexual conduct when such person is less than 14 years old, end quote. That's the statute. A conviction that matches the definition of an aggravated felony crime of sexual abuse of a minor at INA Section 101A43A will make an LPR removable and bar the LPR from just about all forms of relief. The IJ and the BIA found that the crime matched this definition, in this case, among other things. What is an aggravated felony sexual abuse of a minor? Well, in matter of Rodriguez Rodriguez, the BIA held that the federal statute at 18 U.S.C. section 3509A8 is a, quote, useful identification of the forms of sexual abuse under the INA, end quote. 
That statute in turn includes the quote, employment, use, persuasion, inducement, enticement, or coercion of a child to engage in or assist another person to engage in sexually explicit conduct or the rape, molestation, prostitution, or other forms of sexual exploitation of children or incest with children, end quote. But section 3509 is just a guide. It's not the end-all be-all for the aggravated felony sexual abuse of a minor definition said the BIA in Rodriguez-Rodriguez, and said the Second Circuit later on. So the aggravated felony definition is fairly expansive. The Supreme Court, though, put some limits on it in Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions from 2017. In that decision, and at least in the context of statutory rape-type offenses, state convictions only match the aggravated felony definition when the state statute requires that the, quote, age of the victim be younger than 16, end quote. So that's our landscape here. What does the New York crime criminalize? Less severe conduct than all of that? If so, it's not a sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony under the categorical approach. So right off the bat, though, it's got the age requirement. Recall, the crime requires that the victim be less than 14 years old. Supreme Court put that line at 16 years old in Esquivel-Quintana. Not necessarily required anyway, though, because the New York crime doesn't appear to be a statutory rape-type offense, but worth noting and continuing to argue in other cases. More germane to the dispute, then, the New York statute criminalizes, quote, sexual contact, end quote. What the heck is that? Seems like it could be a lot of things. But Mr. Dabik is in trouble, because as the Second Circuit notes, it held that a very similar New York statute was also a sexual abuse of a minor aggravated felony in Rodriguez v. Barr, episode 21. And that statute had the same definition of sexual contact. So really, the panel is bound by Rodriguez on whether New York's definition of sexual contact meets the federal aggravated felony definition of sexual abuse of a minor. And it does. Unfortunately, the panel doesn't get into the sexual contact analysis as it believes it was foreclosed, so I advise that everyone give episode 21 a listen. Hope I did a decent job way back when. The court rejected Mr. DeBeek's other arguments. It didn't matter to the court, for example, that Mr. DeBeek's conviction was a misdemeanor, even though in the Second Circuit Rodriguez decision, a felony was at issue. Same definition of sexual contact. And INA Section 101A43A isn't like, say, the crime of violence aggravated felony definition at 101A43F, which does require at least one year imprisonment. Nothing like that required at 101A43A. Mr. Dubuque is therefore removable and seemingly ineligible for any and all forms of relief that he applied for. Judge Park concurred in judgment to note that the Second Circuit might want to start reevaluating a lot of its immigration precedent, including sexual abuse of a minor precedent, because such decisions were decided, quote, during an era of almost reflexive Chevron deference, end quote. Not so anymore with the Supreme Court, noted Judge Park, an observation much broader than simply the dispute at hand. And that is Debeek v. Garland. Next is Lemos Coronado v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on January 23, 2023. This case is about particular social groups. All asylum from here on out. Miss Lemos Coronado is from Guatemala. In that country, she was very close to her partner's brother, Wilvi, who helped the couple after the birth of their daughter. 
Wilby, in turn, quote, was the private driver for the then mayor of their town, who was known to be an anti-crime, anti-corruption politician, and disfavored among drug traffickers and criminal organizations, end quote. Wilby also had political aspirations of his own, and wanted to be the next anti-narco-trafficking mayor. One day, while Miss Lemus Coronado was visiting Wilby, three masked men entered Wilby's home and murdered him right in front of Miss Lemus Coronado with high-caliber weapons. The men told Miss Lemus Coronado that they did it because Wilby didn't support them. They said it was best if Miss Lemus Coronado didn't say anything to anyone, and they left. Miss Lemus Coronado then started getting threats via text message. She filed a police report about the murders and the texts. Doesn't look like police investigated. She continued to receive threatening texts and fled to the U.S. in June 2014. She reached this country one month later. At the border, Miss Lemus Coronado allegedly requested asylum, but was not told to file anything. She therefore didn't file for four years. She alleged persecution on account of her membership in two particular social groups, witnesses who cooperate with law enforcement in Guatemala and nuclear family members of Wilby, and on account of an imputed political opinion. She had a minor daughter, who she listed as a derivative applicant. The immigration judge ruled favorably for Ms. Lemus Coronado on some issues. For instance, accepting the one-year deadline and permitting Ms. Lemus Coronado to file for asylum and finding the family-based particular social group cognizable. But the IJ didn't believe that she'd experienced the harm and threats for this reason and didn't find the other particular social group cognizable. The cooperation with law enforcement thing. Nor did the IJ believe that any of it happened because of an imputed political opinion. To the IJ, the gang just wanted to prevent her from reporting on the murder. Gotta fear death for the right reasons, under asylum law. The BIA affirmed and noted that Ms. Lemus Coronado had not challenged the denial of Convention Against Torture Protection. Narrowed further before the Eighth Circuit, Ms. Lemus Coronado only challenged, apparently, the BIA's determination, quote, that she failed to demonstrate that her proposed group of witnesses who cooperate with law enforcement is particular and socially distinct within Guatemalan society, end quote. So that's the narrow issue in this case. What is a particular social group? It's a group one, composed of members who share a common, immutable characteristic, two, defined with particularity, and three, socially distinct within the society in question. And a lot of these cases, like here, come down to social distinction. Whether a given particular social group is perceived as distinct by the society, quote, depends on evidence that the society makes meaningful distinctions based on the common immutable characteristics defining the group, end quote. That analysis can't be based on the persecutory conduct alone. The evidence must show that the society as a whole recognizes the shared characteristic as a defining one for the group. How on earth do litigants show that? You tell me. I say experts in lots and lots of news articles, country condition reports, government sources, heck, even blogs of people talking about other people in that group, if they help. Wild stuff, the social distinction requirement, requiring non-citizens to prove to immigration judges how entire foreign populations think, feel, and view others. But then again, there's also case law. The Ninth Circuit, for example, has already held that, quote, those who testified in court could be recognized as a particular social group, especially because the at-issue country had passed legislation to protect the same, end quote. 
That's Henrika's Rivas Beholder, published by the 9th in 2013, and cited all the time. And even the BIA, two years ago in matter of HLSA, held that, quote, cooperation with law enforcement may satisfy the requirements of immutability, particularity, and social distinction, end quote, and may be a valid particular social group if the cooperation is, quote, public in nature, particularly where testimony was given in public court proceedings, end quote. Where did the BIA get this public testimony requirement, and how can it apply it to 195 foreign countries? I remain unclear. Check out episode 40 for the BIA's explanation. It's been a minute. Will the Eighth Circuit adopt a matter of HLSA's public testimony added requirement? The panel isn't so sure, but it held that it didn't matter, because it believed that the IJ and the BIA had also found that Guatemalan society doesn't view, quote, witnesses who cooperate with law enforcement, end quote, as socially distinct. And the Eighth Circuit found no error with that finding public testimony requirement or not. Like all good litigants, Ms. Lamas Coronado had an alternative argument. Guatemala adopted legislation in 1996 that created an office to protect and support witnesses in criminal processes. Pretty good argument, like that Henriquez Rivas argument, especially because even in the Eighth Circuit, quote, formal legislation can indicate that the society in question recognizes the group as socially distinct, end quote. But to the panel, even that wasn't enough here, as Ms. Lamas Coronado did not quote evidence that the law would apply to someone like her, who merely filed a police report, end quote. Quite close, though, if I could be so bold. Dare I say get an expert report satisfying the Eighth Circuit's request and file a motion to reopen with the BIA, relying on that sentence? Seems like the Eighth Circuit wants a bit more on social distinction, though, too. Sounds like Ms. Lamas Coronado needed an expert if, of course, she could find and afford one. No easy burden, asylum burdens. And so, the Eighth Circuit denied the petition for review. Final thought. The requirement that testimony must be public to make related particular social groups socially distinct from matter of HLSA is far from settled precedent. Heck, I doubt the BIA even said in matter of HLSA that the testimony must always be public to find the particular social group cognizable. The BIA rarely creates such categorical rules. So if, like in this case but not satisfied, you believe that you have a case where the IJ or the BIA denied the cognizability of the particular social group solely for a lack of public testimony or public cooperation, fight it on appeal, even in the Eighth Circuit. And that is Lamus Coronado v. Garland. Our final case is Cristobal Antonio v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on January 26, 2023. This case is about past persecution and particular social groups. I told you I was sandwiching between favorable asylum decisions, didn't I? Ms. Cristobal Antonio is an asylum seeker from Guatemala. Pretty timely, all these asylum-type decisions. I'll have the honor of speaking at the wonderful Ayla South Florida Annual Conference during the second week of February in two weeks on these issues. Come and check it out! Miami is wonderful in February. Anyway, Ms. Cristobal Antonio is an asylum seeker from Guatemala. 
She does not identify as a lesbian, but about a year before she fled to the U.S., community members in her town began calling her a lesbian because she began to wear men's clothing in order to find work. The community believed that wearing pants and working the job that she worked at, quote, set the wrong example for their children, end quote. At the U.S. border, she told officials that they threatened to kill her, and that she was whipped by her uncles frequently as a result of her wearing men's clothing. She passed her credible fear interview and was placed in removal proceedings to bring her claim. Stop to note that I have before that under the new Biden administration rules, she may have actually just received asylum right then and there, or at least had her case heard by an asylum officer. Back then, though, of course, instead of just doing it, DHS would initiate removal proceedings for immigration judges to do it in an adversarial system. Seems like Ms. Cristobal Antonio likely reported some of what happened to her, but it was no use doing so in Guatemala. After all, she testified, the mayor of the town himself threatened to have her killed. She elaborated on the threats at her individual hearing in court and explained how she even married a man, but the constant threats and accusations of her being a lesbian led to the separation. She submitted a police complaint that she had filed in Guatemala in support. It escalated, she testified, quote, on December 20th, 2013, members of the community waited for her at her place of work and attempted to lynch her, end quote. Looks like she had some police report proof of that, too. The immigration judge found Ms. Cristobal Antonio credible and believed her story consistent with the documentary evidence on Guatemala. However, the IJ didn't believe that the threats and other harms rose to the level of past persecution. The IJ didn't talk about the whippings, though, notably to the ninth. Nor did the IJ believe that Ms. Cristobal Antonio was part of a cognizable particular social group, quote, style of dress, end quote, and believed the IJ is not immutable. And, believed the IJ, Ms. Cristobal Antonio couldn't be included in a particular social group comprised of lesbians in Guatemala because she was not one. In any event, reasoned the IJ, the fact that the police had taken at least some of the final incidents seriously and investigated and even issued a bit of a decision showed that the police were willing to help. The BIA affirmed all of it without an opinion. Looks like we've got an imputed particular social group case, everyone. Indeed we do. But first, past persecution. In the Ninth Circuit, quote, Threats may be compelling evidence of past persecution, particularly when they are specific and menacing and are accompanied by violent confrontations, near-confrontations, and vandalism, end quote. Met here, said the Ninth Circuit. Fact-specific inquiry, but here, for example, quote, A crowd bet Miss Cristobal Antonio at her workplace and threatened to lynch and burn her if she did not remove the men's clothing. Her neighbors told her husband they believed she was bisexual or lesbian, and even spoke with her grandparents, who were scared for her safety. The community took her to the police because they perceived her to be a lesbian, end quote. They even threatened to burn her. That's past persecution in the Ninth Circuit. Quote, close confrontations, end quote, can cut it. Remember that. Also, Ms. Cristobal Antonio did experience violent attacks, the whippings by her uncles. Unclear how bad they were, but it doesn't really matter. Quote, we do not require severe injuries to meet the serious harm prong of the past persecution analysis. End quote. The focus is more, said the court, on the non-citizen's quote, subjective suffering. End quote. There's a standard I can work with. So again, past persecution, if on account of a particular social group. And I'm not going to lie, 
To the IJ's credit, it doesn't look like the best particular social group was argued before the immigration judge. But to the Ninth Circuit, the evidence compelled a finding that Ms. Cristobal Antonio was persecuted on account of her membership in the group, quote, women in Guatemala who are perceived to be lesbian, end quote. That, my friends, is an imputed particular social group. And it is now permitted in quite a few circuits, discussed over the last two and a half years, on the podcast. To the Ninth Circuit, the IJ erred by analyzing Immigration Court Counsel's particular social group of women in Guatemala who are perceived to have male tendencies and are seen as dangerous to the community. The male tendencies and dress were really ways that the community was identifying Ms. Cristobal Antonio incorrectly as a lesbian, and persecuted her as a result. With the proper group and the past persecution identified, the Ninth Circuit remanded for a determination of whether, in Guatemala, the group of Guatemalan women perceived as lesbians is cognizable. Seems like the panel thinks it is, though. To avoid this, Oyl argued that even if all that is true, Ms. Cristobal Antonio still can't win because she didn't show that the Guatemalan government would be unable or unwilling to control her persecutors. Another element requires to succeed on asylum. But to the Ninth Circuit, just because there was an investigation by police doesn't mean that the government can or will protect. As so often is the case, there is an absence of evidence, and the Ninth Circuit believed that favored Miss Cristobal Antonio a bit. Quote, no record evidence indicates whether the criminal referral by the Justice of the Peace led to any arrests, criminal prosecution, or other action by authorities to minimize the threats. End quote. In fact, quote, when the government has promised future action, but taken none, we have concluded the government was either unable or unwilling to exercise such control, end quote. How about that? And what about the testimony about the mayor, said the court? Plus the uncles again. No one ever did anything about the uncles. Remands for various issues. And therefore, congratulations, Marquay Jimenez, for petitioner. Judge Sanchez wrote in concurrence, to be very clear, that case law was clear that, quote, imputed sexual orientation, end quote, is a cognizable particular social group. I shan't forget. And if you can bear with me for one more minute, might I provide you a quote to begin every asylum brief with, ever? Miss Cristobal Antonio's, quote, decision to flee Guatemala to escape persecution is itself relevant to our analysis, as we have consistently recognized. Being forced to flee from one's home in the face of an immediate threat of severe physical violence or death is squarely encompassed within the rubric of persecution, end quote. Fleeing itself can be persecution. And that is Cristobal Antonio V. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.